You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Awesome. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this word that you have given us that we know is active and it is living. It is your word. It's just as powerful as if you were standing here in the flesh speaking it yourself. And I pray that you, Holy Spirit, would take it from just being words uh, on a page uh, to this just being an information dump, but truly use this. Make it alive in our hearts. Transform us, Lord, from the inside out so that we become a people of love in such a way that it gives you glory. And to Christ's name that I pray and ask these things. Amen. You may be seated. So today we're kicking off this new series that we've entitled One Another, and that's a title uh, taken straight from the words we just read in John chapter 13, which is the simplest, clearest, and yet I would say the hardest command of all to love one another. And if you notice, Jesus says in this passage, we're not just to love one another, but he says we're to love one another as he has loved us. So this is an unconditional love. This is a sacrificial love. It is a, it is a steadfast love. It is, a, as we talked about a few weeks ago, an uncalculated love. When you think about the way Jesus loves us, right? He leaves the 99 to go after the one lost sheep. He turns a house upside down to find one little coin. He, he's like the father and the prodigal son who, after his son blew everything, blew the father's inheritance, he welcomes us with open arms, with, with forgiveness and grace. He lavishes on us all that really just belongs to Christ. This is the way God has loved us. And now in this passage, Jesus says, we are called, we are commanded. This is not just a suggestion. This is not just a good idea. We are commanded by Jesus to love one another with this love that he says is so radical, it's so countercultural, it's so otherworldly that in verse 35, he says, it is by this the world will know that you are my disciples by the love you have for one another. And so more than moralism, more than your intellect, more than your spiritual impressiveness, more than even your ability to do miracles and the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus says it is our love for one another that will cause those around us to look and say, there's something different about you. It will cause others to look and say, I need a a gospel explanation for why you are the way you are. It's our love for one another that causes people to look at us and see Jesus. And guys, that is the whole point of our existence. That is why we are here as a church. It is not to make much of us. It is to make much of Christ. And if we do not fulfill this purpose, we will miss out on the life that we are longing to experience. And so needless to say, uh, if we do not take this command seriously, it does not matter what else we do as a church, we will fail. Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, If I speak with human eloquence and angelic ecstasy but don't love, I'm nothing but a creaking of a rusty gate. If I speak God's word with power, revealing all of his mysteries, right? Like exegete in this passage, I'll be wowed by, man, look at the, the intellect in there and look at everything that, that he's able to share. He says, if I, if I speak God's word with power, revealing all of his mysteries and making everything as plain as day, 
And if I have faith, he says, to even move mountains and say, jump. And it jumps, but I don't love. I am nothing. If I give everything I own to the poor and even go to the state, uh, go to, the state to be burned as a martyr, but I don't love, I've gotten nowhere. So no matter what I say or what I believe or what I do, I am bankrupt without love. With that in mind, over the next six weeks, we're going to try to develop some biblically-based skills that are essential to us learning how to love one another well. And to help us do that, there's a resource that, that I'm using as a guide to the series. It's a, a book by Pete and Jerry Scazzaro. It's entitled Emotionally Healthy Relationships. And so if there's anything that I say in this series that, that, that piques your interest and you want to go deeper in it, this is a great resource for you. It's a workbook that you can dive into, and, and there's all kinds of resources and tips and discussion questions. Uh, just go to Amazon and you can purchase the book. But for today, to kick off the series, uh, we're going to focus on just two skills, uh, two skills that we have to learn as a church if we're going to love one another well. And these are two skills, listen, that you can today put into practice, uh, two skills that aren't just good to use in your missional communities, uh, but they're skills that are great to use in your home, they're great to use in your marriage, they're great to use in your schools, in your places of work, with your family and your friends. And here are the two skills that we're going to talk about today. Stop mind reading and clarify expectations. Stop making assumptions, stop jumping to conclusions, and clarify expectations. These are the two skills we have to learn if we are going to love one another well. And just to help you understand why these skills are so important, I want to put a video on the uh, screen for you. I want you to to watch this, and if you can, once you put it on the screen, uh, just kind of leave it playing. Um, I believe we have. There it is. Okay. So despite what this looks like, this is not an Atari game. Um, This was actually a groundbreaking study that was performed in 1944 in a study that is now known as the Experimental Study of Apparent Behavior. And basically what happened is is, uh, people were invited into this room. They would watch this film just like you are. And then they were asked to write down what they think is actually happening in this film. And what's so interesting to me is after watching this, of all the people who were involved in this study, only one test subject saw this for what it actually is. And you want to know what it actually is? Geometric shapes moving across a plane. That's all that it is. Everyone else watched this video and came up with an elaborate story to make sense of what they thought they were seeing. And you can read about this, by the way, in the American Journal of Psychology. If you want to read the entire report, it's really lengthy. I could send it to you this week if you really wanted to read it. But here were just some of my favorites. Uh, one person said that what they were watching on the screen was two men fighting over a girl. Uh, the big triangle represented a big man who beat up the little man, and after leaving him in a weakened state, he took off with his girl. Uh, another person said that the big triangle is an angry, drunk dad who doesn't approve of his daughter's boyfriend. Another person said the film represents two parents that were fighting over a child, and eventually the child decides to leave and go with his mom. And then this is a good one, too. Another person said that it was two inmates, and one of them was trying to help the other one sneak past the prison guard so that he could be freed from prison. Um, There's a lot more that you can read about, um, but, but here's just my point. You can take that off the screen now. Here's my point. Rather than seeing this film for what it actually is, which is just, again, shapes moving across a screen, Different people came up with different stories to try to make sense of what they thought was going on. 
And you see, the truth is, um, you and I do the exact same thing. Because as the Hollywood screenwriter Bobette Buster points out, we are all narrative creatures. We are a story-formed people who cannot not try to make sense of the world by telling ourselves stories about what we think is actually happening. And in some ways, this is really beautiful, but in other ways, it's actually really bad. Because though there are times where stories that we tell ourselves can help us make sense of the world, there are other times where we make up stories that are not true. We make up a false narrative that in the end do not help our relationships, but actually deeply hurt our relationships. And so let me give you an example of how this works. Uh, Imagine that you send someone a text and they don't respond. Or even worse, imagine you send them a meaningful text and all you get back is a thumbs up. You ever have that happen? Uh, it's like you, you pour out your heart. You're like, I got this word from the Lord I want to share to encourage you. Or I, you let them know how you're praying. And all of a sudden, it's just like, boop, Gary liked your message. And it's like, what? He just liked it? It's like, you know, and, and, and what happens with me a lot of times is I begin to tell myself a story. Rather than assuming the best, oh, Gary's probably just busy, or Gary was really deeply impacted by that, but he doesn't have time to respond right now, I can begin to be like, oh, Gary, like, doesn't care about me. Or apparently I made Gary mad. Or apparently, like, you know, like, he, he, he thinks he has more important stuff to go on. And then I can even begin to do things like, uh, like I can say, like, you know what, well, I guess I'll just never text Gary an encouraging word again. How about that? And I begin to pull back. And you see how the story that I tell myself It doesn't help the relationship, it hurts the relationship because I assume the worst about Gary. And here's the thing, I don't just do this with people I know, like I can do this with complete and total strangers. Um, So for example, my kids started back to school, to public school this past week for the first time in three years. And um, I think it was Wednesday, I was driving them to school and I felt like I was running a little bit late and to make things worse, there was someone uh, in the fast lane who was going very slow which is a pet peeve for mine. I'm like, you want to go slow? Cool. Just move over to the other side of the lane. No big deal. But this person sitting there in the fast lane, driving slow, and all of a sudden I found myself uh, building this story. I found myself thinking, like, who does this person think they are? Like, like, do they think they're the only person on the road right now? Like, clearly this person doesn't care about me. They don't care about my kids. They don't care about anybody else on the road. And before I know it, like, I am building up in my heart this story that is concluding this is a really terrible human being. You know, and, and so I'm like, you know, I got to get up beside this person and see, like, what does a person look like that drives that way, you know? And, and so, like, uh, you can imagine how crappy I felt whenever I get up and I notice that the person driving looks like he's literally, like, 95 years old, you know? And, and, and I'm sitting there thinking, like, you know, he's probably just trying, he's probably scared to death on the road. He's just trying to be brave, probably going out to get groceries because his wife can't go to get groceries. But here I am in my mind convincing myself this is a really, really bad guy who don't care about me, my kids, or anybody else. And here's my point in just sharing that. If you are being honest, you do this too. Now, maybe not to that extent, okay? Some of you are like, wow, like you really need help. And I agree, I do. I've been seeing a therapist for a while. Um, I'm working on it. But here's just my point. Because we are narrative creatures, Like, you cannot not try to make up stories about what you think is going on in the world. And when we make up negative stories about others, because these stories impact us emotionally, if it is a false story, it will impact our relationships negatively. And and the Bible has a lot to say about this. In Proverbs, uh, for example, it says a lot about it. This is Proverbs chapter 18, verse 2. You don't have to turn there, but we'll put it on the screen for you. It says, fools find no pleasure in understanding, 
but they delight in airing their own opinions. They don't even really care about what the truth is. They don't even try to understand. I just know, bam, here's what happened. Verse 13, this is Proverbs 18, verse 13. To answer before listening, that is foley and shame. The word for, for foley there, it means it's stupid. That's a stupid thing to do, for you to just begin to come up with a conclusion without listening to somebody else share their side of the story. And then in verse 15, it says, The heart of the discerning acquires knowledge, for the ears of the wise will seek it out. And so they will listen to try to get a fresh perspective to understand the reality about what is actually happening before they draw their conclusion. And you see, this wisdom actually falls right in line with the ninth commandment. Remember the Ten Commandments that God gives to Israel in Exodus 20? God gives the, the people of Israel Ten Commandments. And when you think about the Ten Commandments, it's really important. Don't think primarily about rules. Think about relationships. The Ten Commandments are given by God for the purpose of saying, here's how you can have a healthy relationship with me and a healthy relationship with others. In Exodus 22, God said to Israel, I am your God who frees you from slavery. So I am your God. You are my people. And then he says, look, let me show you how now to go from living like slaves in Egypt to loving like family. And the first four commands he gives is all about how they can have a healthy relationship with God. But then the last six are all about how to have a healthy relationship with one another. And the ninth commandment God says, chapter 20, verse 16 of Exodus, here it is, do not give a false testimony about your neighbor. In other words, if you want to have healthy relationships, if you want to love one another, you have to tell the truth about one another. Rather than making up stories in your head that are not true, rather than misrepresenting that person in your mind in a way that distorts reality, you have to make sure that you are telling others, and before you tell others, you're, you're telling yourself this, you have to make sure that the story you are telling yourself is objectively true and accurate. And guys, here's why this is so important. When we build up a story about someone else in our mind that is not entirely true, when we assign to them motives that were not their motives or, or ideas or desires that are not accurate, what happens is we end up condemning an innocent person in our heart. And when we do this, God says you break the ninth commandment. When we bear false witness against our neighbor, that's what is happening. And as a result, listen, this destroys relationships. Pete Cazero says it like this in his book, Every time we make an assumption about someone who has hurt or disappointed us without confirming it, we believe a lie about this person in our head. Because we have not checked it out with him or her, it is very possible that we are believing something untrue. It is also likely that we will pass that false assumption around to others. When we leave reality for a mental creation of our own doing, we create a counterfeit world. When we do this, it can properly be said that we exclude God from our lives because God does not exist outside of reality and truth. In doing so, we wreck relationships by creating endless confusion and conflict. Simply put, when we make up a story about someone else in our head, when we think that somehow we have these psychic powers that give us the ability to read someone else's mind, when this is not a true story, we break the ninth commandment. We sin against God and we sin against the person. We bear false witness. Rather than loving the person, we condemn the person. And listen, 
I really truly believe this is Satan's number one strategy against the church. I think that more than we need to be concerned about attacks out there, we have to be concerned about attacks in here. I believe that one of Satan's greatest tactics to try to destroy his church is to plant in your head lies or half-truths about someone else. Lies that, if left unchecked and unabated, will spread like a cancer and eventually erode and destroy our relationships. This is why God gives us the ninth commandment, to not bear false testimony against another because, guys, listen, plain and simple, lies destroy lives. I think back to my own story, and every relationship problem that I can think about has has been a problem because of false assumptions. Either false assumptions made about me or false assumptions that I made about others. Times where rather than assuming the best about you, I would assume the worst. I would make up a story in my head that just was not entirely true. And my guess is this morning, again, if you can be honest, like some of you can relate to this, times where where you have been judged incorrectly and times where you have judged others incorrectly, times where you did not have the whole story, and yet rather than assuming the best, you filled in the gap with something that was worse. You decided to play both detective and judge, and as a result, condemn an innocent person in your heart. And the reality is, guys, we have to hear this today, like, like you're not God, and I'm not God, which means like, like no matter how smart we are or discerning we are, we do not know everything. We cannot always detect the other person's motives or their intent or what is going on. And therefore, if we are going to love well, the first thing we have to learn, the first skill we have to apply to our lives is we have to stop mind reading. Secondly, and finally, we have to clarify expectations. Because as Cazero points out in his workbook, unmet expectations wreak havoc on relationships. People quit jobs over unmet expectations. Churches split over unmet expectations. Uh, Couples divorce over unmet expectations. Family and friends stop talking because of unmet expectations. Holidays are ruined because of unmet expectations. Expectations that, whether you realize it or not, have been handed down to you by thousands upon thousands of messages from your family, from the culture, from movies, from music, from trauma, from your life experiences, expectations that we all carry into our relationships for better or for worse. You know, I remember whenever I first got married, I had this expectation uh, that when I came home from work, my, my house would always smell like Bed Bath & Beyond, and our meals would look like something prepared by the pioneer woman. Uh, I thought that was a pretty reasonable expectation. Um, but as you can imagine, my wife did not. And so this created some trouble. I had one expectation. My wife had another. And part of this is because of how we grew up. I grew up in a home that was pristine. I mean, you wouldn't find a speck of dust anywhere. There was always candles burning. And, and my mom loved to cook. My mom kind of grew up by her grandma's elbow learning how to cook. My wife did not grow up that way. Uh, my wife's family didn't freak out when, when something was out of place. Uh, I heard my wife's dad probably did just as much, if not more, of the cooking than even the mom did. And so, as you can imagine, again, this, this kind of, we begin to clash. When we first got married, she had expectations, I had expectations, both of those expectations went unmet, and it caused, early on in our marriage, some pretty big fights that led to a lot of hurt. And, and, and so, you know, what Scazzaro points out then in his book is, 
if we're going to have healthy relationships, we need to have healthy expectations. And so he actually contrasts. He says there's a difference between unhealthy expectations and, and healthy expectations. And he says uh, unhealthy expectation, he says it's four things. He says it's unconscious, it's unrealistic, it's unspoken, and it's not agreed upon. And so if you think about an unhealthy expectation, it's unconscious. You know, a lot of times we don't even know what our expectations are of someone until they don't meet them. Then when we're disappointed, then we realize it was an expectation. But that's an unhealthy expectation. I'm not even aware I had the expectation. It's also unhealthy expectation when it's an unrealistic expectation. Um, here's a tip for you. Don't have your grandma waiting for your wife uh, at your house when you get back from the honeymoon. Um, I did that. Uh, when we got back from our honeymoon, my grandma was waiting there to teach my wife how to make cornbread and, uh, and, and, and biscuits. Uh, listen, guys, I'm not sharing that out of, out of pride. That's, that's embarrassing. I hope you know, like the Lord has been sanctifying me slowly but surely. You think I'm a mess now? You should have seen me back then, right? And so we're sitting there. I thought it'd be a great idea, you know? Grandma's there, and, and basically I thought my wife, even though she didn't grow up cooking, could have learned how to do in 60 minutes what it took my grandma 60 years to figure out how to do. That is a very unrealistic expectation. That's an unhealthy expectation. Uh, unhealthy expectations are unspoken. So if you have, maybe you're conscious of the expectation, but, but it's also unhealthy. If you don't tell someone, here is my expectation. And so like, if you're mad at someone that they didn't respond to your text within 24 hours, have you ever told them that's your expectation that, hey, if you're going to be my friend, I want you to respond to my text within 24 hours. If not, that is a unhealthy expectation that you have for somebody. And then finally, it's an unhealthy expectation if it's not agreed upon. So it's one thing to tell someone, this is my expectation, but then if you want it to be healthy, it's got to be something y'all both agree on. And this is what Scazzaro says. He says, a healthy expectation, rather than being unconscious, it's conscious. So you know you've got it. Rather than being unrealistic, it's, it's realistic. You know that this person is capable of doing this thing because they've proven that they're capable of doing this thing. If you want to have a healthy expectation, rather than it being unspoken, it's spoken. And then finally, rather than being not agreed upon, it's agreed upon. So both parties say, yes, this is a good thing, not just for you, but also for me. That is what healthy expectations are. You see it on the screen. It's conscious, it's realistic, it's spoken, it's agreed upon. If you want to have healthy relationships, you have to establish healthy expectations. But here's the thing, and I want to say this before we end, and we're almost done. Here's what I want you to realize. Even if we have healthy expectations... Because we live in a fallen, broken world, because everybody that you see is a sinner just like you, because every human being in this room and everyone you meet has failures and flaws, there are times where you can establish a healthy expectation, an expectation that is conscious and realistic and spoken and agreed upon, and someone still fail to live up to your expectation. And when that happens, not if that happens, when that happens, how you respond, how we respond as a church really matters. And here are just three things I want to share very quickly. Three ways I want to encourage you to respond when, not if, but when someone fails to meet, to live up to your expectation. And the first thing I want to encourage you to do is this. When someone fails to meet your expectations, believe the best. You know, the truth is, when, when people fail to meet our expectations, it creates a gap. And you know, you get to decide what you put in that gap. 
you can either put the worst case scenario in that gap or you can put the best case scenario in that gap, right? Someone fails you in some way, you can go worst case scenario. I knew they were going to do that. That's just like them. Of course, that's what they did. Or, oh, I knew she was going to write like You can go there or you can begin to assume the best. Man, they're probably really busy, probably under a ton of pressure right now, right? Probably got a lot going on. See, according to the Apostle Paul, this is what true love looks like. In 1 Corinthians 13, 7, Paul says, love believes all things. Another translation for that is love believes the best. Rather than it saying that you are guilty until proven innocent, it says truly you are in my mind innocent until proven guilty. And so choose to believe the best. Secondly, if you're struggling to choose to believe the best, I want to encourage you to be curious, not judgmental. You know, um, how many of you in here have seen Ted Lasso, the movie or the show Ted Lasso? Fantastic. Uh, one of the greatest of all times, right up there with uh, Saved by the Bell and Family Matters. And so um, I love this scene in Ted Lasso. It, it, it's, he's playing darts with the antagonist Rupert. And you remember it, right? Rupert's like, he, he, sees, he takes one look at Ted. He's like, this guy's probably a terrible dart player. I'm going to uh, play you for darts. And here's the thing. If I beat you, you have to quit coaching the, the, the team. Right? And if I win, I get ownership of the team or whatever their, their bet was. So he, he goes up to Ted, says, you must be terrible at darts. Let's play a game of darts. Ted ends up beating Rupert, but right before he throws the winning dart, here's what he says, and I love this. He says, guys have underestimated me my entire life, and for years I never understood why. It used to really bother me. But then one day I was driving my little boy to school, and I saw a quote by Walt Whitman. It was painted on the wall, and there it said, be curious, not judgmental. All of a sudden, it hits me. All of them fellows that used to belittle me, not a single one of them was curious. You know, they thought they had everything all figured out, and so they judged everything, and they judged everyone. And I realized that they're underestimating me. Who I was had nothing to do with it, because if they were curious, then they would have asked questions. Questions like, have you ever played a lot of darts, Ted? To which I would have answered, yes, sir every Sunday afternoon at a sports bar with my father from age 10 until I was 16 when he passed away. See, what Lasso is hitting on is what Jesus hit on in Matthew 7. Judge not, lest you be judged. Rather than being judgmental or hypercritical, be genuinely curious. When someone fails to meet your expectations, rather than building up this false story in your head, how about you go and check your story with them and say, hey, just, just tell me what was going on. Help me understand. Be genuinely, not, not like in an accusing way, but genuinely curious with an open mind. Tell me your side of the story. What happened? Why did you do what it is that you did? And then finally, it kind of leads me to the last little point. I would encourage you when someone fails to meet your expectations, practice empathy. Practice empathy. You want to know why people fail to meet your expectations? The same reason that you fail to meet other people's expectations. Um. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying when people fail to meet our expectations, there shouldn't be consequences, there shouldn't be accountability, at times even loving discipline that we should just kind of sweep things under the rug. But at the end of the day, before we are so quick to hang someone for their sins, to punish them for not doing what we think they should have done or, or, or doing what we think they should not have done, let's try the best we can, church, to put ourselves in the place of other people to imagine what it would have been like to be where they are. You know, I guess I just want to tell on myself today, but growing up, there were people that were different than me that I used to judge from a distance. I would never do that. 
is what I would look at people. And I, I won't go into detail, but certain people I would look at and say, God, I would never do the things they did. And then I began to work for Arkansas Counseling for six years, and I went into the homes of these people that I used to judge. And I realized, you know what, if I would have grew up just like them, I probably would have been worse off than even they are. We've got to learn to empathize with people, to put ourselves in their place, to see things from their perspective. If we are going to err on one side or another, for me personally, the church I want to be a part of, I would rather it's err on the side of compassion than condemnation. And if you were like, man, that all sounds great, but how do you expect me to do that? Well, that takes us back to John 13, where we started, where I intentionally skipped over a part of the verse where Jesus commands us to love one another and focus on this, how I have loved you. And you see, that is actually where the key is. That's where the source of our power to love others comes from. The source of loving others when they fail to meet our expectations is remembering how God has loved us even whenever we fail to meet his expectations. To remember that all of us in here have sinned. All of us in here have fallen short of the glory of God. We all continue to fall short every single day of God's holy expectations. And yet while we were sinners, Christ came and died for us. And whenever you see Jesus loving you, even whenever you are failing him, Only then, when we meditate on this love, or as Jesus says in John 15, as we abide in this love, can we truly love others even whenever they fail us with an unconditional love, a sacrificial love, a steadfast, uncalculated, at times irrational love that is so bizarre to the world that they look at us and they see Jesus.